Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is Partisans Part 10, The Legacy and Aftermath of the Spanish Civil War. Now while I've always had an interest in the Spanish Civil War, it was a walking tour in Barcelona that really transformed this interest. The guide of that tour was Nick Lloyd, an expert in the conflict who has a unique ability to bring history to life. And originally, I had actually hoped to go to Barcelona for a weekend, meet Nick in person and record this final episode where the actual history took place. Now, obviously, due to COVID-19 restrictions, that's not possible. But nevertheless, I was delighted to be able to interview Nick to get his insights into the legacy and aftermath of the conflict. Because while the Spanish Civil War came to an end in April 1939, and the Irish returned home. For many Spaniards, Basques and Catalans, the conflict did not end for decades. And I feel to conclude the series, it is important to get an insight into what happened in Spain in those decades. While this is the last episode of Partisans, as I mentioned in the last show, there's lots of great content coming. The next episode will be on the life of a woman called Bridget Kent, whose husband Joseph was a soldier in the British Army. And the couple travelled around the world in the 19th century, living an extraordinary life. For that, I'll be talking to the historian Aoife Vernach, the host of the podcast Censored. After that, I'll be making an episode on what it was like to live on an Irish pre-famine diet. So for a day, I'll be trying a diet that involves six kilos of potatoes. Yeah, that's six kilos. I'll also be interviewing a food historian. So that should be a pretty different show. While I'm making those episodes, I'll also be starting preparation for a new mini-series that investigates one of the most intriguing and unsettling stories I've come across in our history. I don't want to give too much away, but various working titles for that series have included suggestions like Overkill and Human Sacrifice, so that gives you a sense where that one is heading. Then there's also a series on the War of Independence in the pipeline. So there's a lot of content coming. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, now is the time to do it to make sure you don't miss out. Finally, I want to thank all the people involved in Partisans. Stuart Redden for his amazing research throughout the series, Aidan Crow and Mwern Hogan for their narrations, and Keith Hines for his artwork. Last but not least, 
are the show patrons who have funded Partisans from buying books and funding research and writing. Thank you so much. The Patrons Only series, which has been on hiatus for the last two weeks, resumes next week with a double episode. If you'd like to get access to that Patrons Only series, as well as early access to ad-free versions of the podcast while supporting my research, just check out patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Now, let's go to that interview with Nick Lloyd. Nick lives in Barcelona and I had to interview him over the phone, so obviously the sound quality isn't as perfect as if it was a face-to-face interview. But I think you're really going to enjoy this content. So Nick, can you tell listeners just a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in the Spanish Civil War? i have been living in Barcelona for, for more than 30 years and I became interested in this about 15 years ago. They put up a plaque to a, um, a guy who was born 30 metres from where I'm uh, standing now uh, called Frances Bosch, who became, later became the only Spaniard um, called to declare at Nuremberg against the Nazis. And I just became fascinated with this figure and how he helped to smuggle out lots of negatives uh, from the Malthausen camp and had the fact he was born in my neighbourhood of Barcelona. And it was through him that I became interested first, actually. And then you have kind of developed that interest into this phenomenal walking tour in, in Barcelona around the story of the Spanish Civil War. Yeah, so it all grew a little bit, bit by bit. Uh, first of all, I started just trying to find out more about the war, just on a personal level. And reading more and more, and then I suddenly realised, well, maybe I could do a few tours every now and again, and it just grew and grew and grew. Uh, become a sort of a life obsession, to be honest. Do you want to just actually explain to people before we get into the legacy of the Spanish Civil War? There's actually you're doing virtual tours now, so people maybe listening to this can actually find out uh, what that experience is like about a walking tour of Barcelona online. Yeah. So first of all, um, this tour is me and Catherine. Catherine's by the way from Galway, um, my fellow guide. We're doing. We're starting to. We're organising talks and tours, uh, virtually, uh, on the war. So the first one's going to be on Orwell. Then we'll be also doing one on different topics on international brigades, on women, on anarchism, Guernica probably, and also we'll be doing a virtual version of the tour. Um, just trying to get the technical stuff sorted out. Lots to learn, <laughs> uh, and how people can pay me. <laughs> um, probably a couple of hours and it'll be 10 or 15 euros a go or something but we're interactive with questions on a zoom meeting and small groups well as someone who's been on uh, nick's tours i'd really recommend people to check that out and i'll put links in the uh, notes with the show where people can find out more about it we might start now just about the legacy of the spanish civil war so it ends on april the 1st 1939 as people will know from listening to the series partisans but can you give a sense to people of that of an overview, maybe, of Franco's regime that took power at the end of the war. I suppose, how did it operate? How is it different, maybe, than what people live in today, I suppose, where most people listening to this live in a Western democracy of one kind or another? The Franco regime, which took power, um, was a totalitarian regime based on military terror with the support of the Catholic Church. It was a regime which accepted absolutely no dissent, it was a regime where quite a considerable part of the population bought into it. Uh, so there were, were winners, not only losers. I think we're going to talk about the losers in a minute. But it was, it was a totalitarian dictatorship. As the years went on, it morphed into something slightly less 
totalitarian, but continued to be murderous till the end, uh, till after the death of Franco in 75. And maybe then, could you give people a sense of what, say, Barcelona was like? What was that city like after it had essentially been occupied by Franco's troops? So Barcelona falls on the 26th of January 1939, and there's several days of uh, illegal murders. And then from within five days, the legal executions begin. And in over the next few years in Barcelona, they executed with the, with the, the Franco's law in the, in, on, on the hand, uh, 1,707 people in the city. And it was a city absolutely divided between winners and victors. I mean, winners and losers. I mean, this is the same everywhere in Spain. Uh, you could tell anywhere you know, who wins and who loses by the way people walk, that the, the defeated are stooped, marked out as being scum, um, barbarians, um, not even allowed to dignify their own dead. Their children are also called scum and barbarians. Uh, we also have to think that the Barcelona in the 40s would have been a city, working-class Barcelona would have been a city in which there wouldn't have been that many men. Uh, many, many were, or relatively few men, many were dead, or they'd gone into exile, or they were um, more than likely in prisons and in concentration camps. So you have to think about the women and, and how they managed to survive and, 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 and raise their children. And, you know, to be honest, parts of working-class Barcelona was, was described at times as being like a giant brothel because, you know, how could women survive? And I guess one of the things that's really come to light in the last 20 years, certainly, I think, internationally anyway, was what Paul Preston has called the Spanish Holocaust and I guess the, the huge wave of repression all across the Spanish state that lasted for decades I think maybe in the international understanding that has been kind of, I wouldn't say airbrushed, but the, the, the focus is always on the conflict and the idealism of the conflict. Can you just explain a little bit about that regime that takes hold in the decades afterwards in terms of the repression? Yeah, the, the repression is it, it's murderous. Um, I mentioned the figure for Barcelona, but the, the figure for the whole of Spain is something like 50,000 uh, legal executions accompanied by probably a number, something like 50,000 um, deaths in, from, from abuse in Spain's prisons and concentration camps. You know, Republican Spain becomes a, a giant concentration camp as far as Franco's concerned, and people's lives absolutely ruined. And all the people, those people returning to the villages and to their towns, they are now watched. They're, they're, they're marked people. Their children are also marked. Uh, everything they do is followed by the police. Uh, they need permission to do everything. Um, it is a totalitarian police state, certainly in the first 20 years. I guess one of the big things that when we look back on the 20th century, we think of the World War II that breaks out within six months of the end of the Spanish Civil War. Can you just talk a little bit about, obviously, and I suppose it's important to contextualise, Hitler and Mussolini had both helped Franco win that war. What's Spain's experience then of the war? Well, Spain, of course, is officially neutral, although we should say it is really belligerently neutral. It's on the same side as Hitler and Mussolini. It just never finds the right, Franco never finds the right time to join, and perhaps initially it's probably more in Hitler and Mussolini's history to keep, keep Spain out of the war, because the Spanish economy is in a mess, Spanish army is in a mess, and anything that can keep it going is German oil and material, and, and Hitler doesn't want to pay that, pri um, pay that price. I mean, it's a complicated story, that one, but Franco 
does not join officially the Second World War. He does, though, um, allow northern Spain, ports in northern Spain to be used as U-boat bases. He does uh, send 50-odd thousand uh, nominally volunteers, the so-called Blue Division, to fight together with the Nazis at Leningrad and help with espionage, etc. So it's all but declare war. That said, you know, after the fall of Stalingrad, you know, Franco wasn't stupid, and so then he starts to tone things back and he starts to emphasise, he reduces his emphasis on it, on fascism and uh, or downplays fascism and, and, and claims that, you know, his whole regime is, is a Catholic regime aimed at saving Western Western civilization from um, red barbar, barbarism. You kind of touch on, actually, I think what's you know, a very interesting thing, and I think maybe from an Irish perspective in, in particular, the Catholic Church had been so central to mobilising Irish people to go and fight in the Spanish Civil War, but it, it was very central to the understanding of the Spanish Civil War in Ireland. And the Catholic Church obviously backed Franco to the hilt. What role did they play in that regime then that comes to power in 1939? So the Catholic Church is absolutely—it's it, the moral basis for the new regime. It's um, that Franco passes power, passes the Church gives the church um, uh, control over health and education, um, has a huge social role, particularly in the villages. They control the, 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 the eyes of the regime along with the police. And because it, it's before the war, before the Spanish Civil War, the, the estimate is 20%, only 20% of people in Spain actually went to church, which apparently is the lowest in Christian at the time, which I think very much contradicts our images of Spain, say, in, in the 50s. And this all changed in 39 when Franco wins and the church takes control of education and people, people are forced to send their children to now, children are forced to, are educated by the Catholic Church um, and they're in a really extreme form of Catholicism as well, we should say, and their parents can't say anything about it. And, and we get a generational leap between an older generation which is more anti-clerical and a younger generation which is more Catholic. And, you know, this is, of course, his schisms in family after family. Uh, to be fair, uh, by the late 50s, the sort of like cracks starting to emerge, narrow ones, and some of the first resistance within the regime itself are from young priests who are starting to become very uncomfortable with this regime now. Uh, some of them are arrested, etc. And then in the, the 60s, what was called liberation theology um, has a very big impact in Spain and by the late 60s you get you know communist priests appearing and worker priests um, and so we could say perhaps by the 1970s the Catholic Church is very different than in the 30s because it's a very divided institution between uh, um, um, the bedrock which is extreme right but also quite a strong left-wing church as well at the grassroots level. A regime like Franco's is always going to produce resistance. I think it's it's somewhat inevitable, but particularly the nature of how it had come to power. Can you just talk a little bit about, I suppose, maybe the initial resistance that does continue, albeit on a small scale, through then, you've touched on a little bit there of, I suppose, resistance that people might not expect coming from within the church. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Well, the resistance in the in the in the forties, um, when well, when Franco wins, people, not everybody gives up. Um, what's left of the Republican Army and all the political groups of the left, from the anarchists, the communists, the social democ, the socialists, the liberal Republicans, are all involved in a, a, a military struggle uh, against Franco. Um, a, a desperate military struggle. Um, after 44 and the liberation of um, France, the Spanish Republicans have been fighting, uh, played a very important role. I should have said that before in 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 the um, in the liberation of in, in, in the fight against Vichy and the Nazis, Spanish Republicans in exile. That, some of them come back to Spain, and there's a slight uptake in in resistance, but then it. It slowly falls off. And by 1948, um, all the political groups, with the exceptions of the anarchists, abandon the fight uh, because because the Western democracies are just not going to support them because of the Cold War, no? Partly. Um, and then after that, it's just the, la- the, the CNT, that's the anarchist trade union, they abandon their fight formally in 1955. And then then we have the last of the what we call the Mackies, you know, the the, uh, the guerrilla fighters, which began in 1939 and, and continued all the way through to the early 60s when the last are sort of shot down by the police. And after that, we, then we have um, new forms of resistance emerging um, from, say, the late early 60s. You get the, the, the sort of informal illegal trade unions subverting the official fascist trade union or Francoist trade union rather um, and and then 1968 has a big impact in Spain the protest movements are growing uh, you know you even get people children of within the regime being pulled into this as well and slowly but surely the working class movement is getting stronger and stronger and there's huge waves of stripes in the early 1970s with vicious pol- police repression against it and it, I don't think any not not this is never going to be at the stage. It's not going to be strong enough to topple the regime. The top the regime is still all powerful, but it's certainly making it shake a little bit, um, which takes us to the death of Franco in '75. I was reading something recently that was talking about the impact of tourism that starts in I suppose the '50s and the '60s, that you have increasing numbers of people coming from outside of Spain that are I suppose to a degree, maybe liberalising society. Do you think, is that overstated? Is that the, or does that have an impact? No, it certainly does. But I'll 
go back a bit. So one of the things I missed out was the, the economy, the effect on the Spanish economy, the war was the Spanish economy was shattered by the war, as were second economies in, in Europe, by the, far more so in some cases, by the Second World War. Um, most European countries are recovering within five, five six years, uh, where in Spain it took 15 to 20 years because the Spanish, um, you, you don't get levels of similar levels of prosperity you had in 1936 until the late 50s. Uh, and this is partly, this is basic because the, 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 the economic model under Franco, uh, was a kleptocracy. It was based on corruption and nepotism. It was officially, it was a, it was a, it's a term called, um, autarky, which is a closed economy. And uh, everything was controlled by the state, which gave massive opportunities for kickbacks. And the situation was getting, worse and worse. There were several bailouts. And finally, in 1959, the IMF um, imposes conditions on Spain to be to be rescued. And basically, a, a series of gifted extreme rights, we have to say, technocrats, economists, technocrats from the Opus Dei, the Catholic organization, take over the economy from the old military economists who don't really have a clue about how to run an economy. Franco's idea of running an economy was to shout at it, you know, like, like somebody said, I think, because it was a barrack room. Um, and then that co- take, so, and, and the open state economists bring in liberal capitalist reform. So that's one thing. And then the second thing, as you said there, very importantly, was the arrival of mass tourism. Millions of people from Northern Europe bringing in, and that's some of that, you know, that money does actually get spread out quite well in the tourist areas. And the one that people often forget, though, is the third factor, which is the uh, European economic boom, which is not only sending people on to tourists, it also needs more and more Spanish people to work in factories. So people are going, you know, several million Spaniards are going into northern Italy and Germany and Belgium and France, etc., and they're sending back their remittances. And those huge amounts of emissions, and those three factors, the liberal economic reforms, uh, mass tourism, and the, um, and the um, sending remittances home, are the three things that lead to a, kind of a genuine economic miracle in the last, latter years of the Franco regime, where, you know, in the, late, in the early 60s, the United Nations classified Spain as third world, and, you know, outside the big cities, I think it is. By the early 70s, you know, that's changing. You know, in, in Barcelona, workers by the early 70s are aspiring to have cars. Many of them have them. Fridge ownership, I think, was 70%. Well, it was only 40%. Or in Manchester in 1970, it was 70% in Barcelona. Point being that, you know, things were getting better economically at the same time with a brute. As long as you towed the line, uh, outside that, the reality was a vicious police state <clears throat> until right after the end. And just while we've talked a lot about, uh, I suppose, life inside Franco Spain, at the end of the war, huge numbers of people had left fleeing into exile. Do you want to just talk a little bit about maybe generally speaking where they went and what life was like for those people who were in exile? Yeah, great. So there was um, small numbers left from Basque Country and from the ports in Valencia, but the, the, the biggest... Um, Exile is from Catalonia itself, which is approximately half a million people, uh, probably half of whom are Catalans, the rest were from the rest of Spain, across the border, uh, escaping uh, Franco's encroaching army in uh, 
February, January, February 1939, 10 days, half a million people. That must be one of the biggest movements in world history. Uh, they arrive in France, where the, where the still democratic government, this is not Vichy France, treats these people worse than animals. They, they put them into, to put it politely, internment camps, uh, and thousands died of awful conditions in these camps in the next few um, few months. And when the Second World War, um, um, well, rather when, when it, when it looks like the Nazis are going to invade, they're given the opportunity to join the French Foreign Legion. Others are uh, conscripted into, 50,000 are conscripted into um, labor battalions to, to build the Maginot Line, for example. When uh, Germany does invade, around 10,000 of those Spanish Republicans are captured and sent to Nazi camps, most famously of all, Mauthausen, where 7,000 ended up. Um, and, and, and in total of it, it's approximately 10,000 Spanish Republicans were sent to Nazi camps and 7,000 died. Um, those were more, I mean, they also formed, as I think I mentioned before, the, the, the backbone. Those weren't captured of the resistance against the, the, the Nazis um, and against Vichy, along initially along with all the international brigaders from Central and Eastern Europe and France itself, who can't get back home. In fact, the death rate of international brigaders during the Second World War, half the survivors in 1939 were dead by 1945 in camps in resistance in the front. In fronts. Terrible. Anyways, back to the Spanish. Those who were more fortunate, um, often because they had political connections or have careers and things, they manage academic qualifications. They get to South America. It's, uh, I think it's twenty thousand uh, South America, um, small Chile, Argentina, Dominican Republic, Cuba, Venezuela, but above all Mexico. Um, and the exile in Mexico is very important. And it's absolutely said that the, the Spanish Republican exile in, in Mexico changed Mexico for the better because um, it brought in a large number of doctors, teachers, engineers, town planners, etc. And, you know, there's a kind of time with Ireland now, isn't there? Because all of these people, the, you know, the trauma of the, the Irish emigration, the famine, etc., and the sort of the nostalgia for returning home, you get exactly the same thing with the Spanish Republican diaspora and exile. Um, in France, but above all in South America, you know, singing the old songs. We would have been a copless in the case of the Spanish Republican, in Republican clubs in Mexico City, in Moscow, and... Uh, Toulouse in France, uh, wondering when they're ever going to go home. Uh, that neatly brings us on to the fall of the regime. So Franco himself obviously dies in 1975, and then in the following years, uh, the regime uh, collapses, I suppose. Can you just talk us through the um, how that the, the nuts and bolts of that, or how that happens? Yeah, so Franco dies in 1975, and there'd already been attempts within more, let's say, liberal elements within the regime to come to accommodation with the opposition, which was growing and becoming more confident. And after his death, the the, the more, let's say, liberal elements within the regime um, um, negotiate with the opposition um, or for, the, for the figure of the king to, for the return of democracy. Um, we have to... There was always a very strong element that didn't want any negotiation, a die-hard element who wanted to stay, uh, continue with the ideals of, of national Catholicism, which was the idea, ideology under Francoism, um, called the, nicknamed the Bunker. 
um, but they were finally outplayed. And um, but the figure of the king here is very important. He's the, the character who steers the transition in the direction in which, let's say, it was most in interest <coughs> to those parties. Um, the transition is often portrayed as being a peaceful operation. It wasn't. There were hundreds of murders, hundreds of people were killed, either uh, from the extreme right, or also, of course, especially from ETA, the Basque, Basque uh, group, and um, akin to the IRA, to put it in an Irish context, um, and also the left-wing, extreme left-wing groups, and also police violence, police and, and military violence. Uh, hundreds were killed during the transition. Um, the transition was also, in a sense, the left. The conditions of the transition is, in a sense, the left had no choice because the right had all the weapons. It had the control of the military. It had the control of the police, and it basically had a pistol to the left's head, and said, "Sign here." Maybe that was the only possibility at that stage. That Spanish constitution, which in some ways was very progressive, another way certainly wasn't. Um, the problem with the, tra with, with the constitution, the problem with the constitution is, for the, certainly those on the right today, it has become a text set in stone. Whereas we should perhaps really see it as a as as a document which was what was possible at that moment. And today in Spain, we have great problems, great problems, territorial problems, Spain's relationship with Catalonia, and vice versa, etc. And because the, the Spanish right won't accept any form of change to this constitution, um, this creates more and more tension. And maybe just to wrap up then, the Spanish Civil War I always think is quite unusual in that it's followed very quickly by the um, Second World War, obviously a much, much bigger conflict, yet it has this kind of enduring legacy and memory that right up to the present day it occupies this space where people still talk back or look back to that conflict and it provokes a lot of interest. Why do you think the Spanish Civil War stands out in what is an extraordinarily violent century? Right, well, I think obviously when we're talking, when we're talking about that, we mean the international, the, 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 the extraordinary presence of the Spanish Civil War internationally because nationally it's logical that the Spanish Civil yeah, War has yeah. such memory because it affected so many people. I think partly because it's, it, it's a prelude to the Second World War and all the great ideologies of the 20th century are clashing there. Communism, anarchism, liberal democracy, uh, fascism, uh, military authoritarianism, they're all clashing together. Um, but also, it's also because, well, I mean, it depends on which country we're talking about as well, because, I mean, I don't think that there's not so much memory in many countries, mostly well, but there is particularly in Britain and, and in Ireland. And I think this is probably because of the importance of the international brigades, because it was the first time that before the British government did anything, while the British government was effectively supporting Franco without saying so, a large number of young British men and, and women came to fight against fascism. It was the first act of British society against fascism. And this, this is still an immense source of pride, I think, in working class movements in Britain. And, it, and of course, that, that's one fact. And then the other fact is, of course, his famous authors, um, above all, of course, Orwell, uh, authors who, who have maintained that memory by writing about it. I think without those two factors, the memory of the Spanish Civil War would not have been so strong. Also, in Eastern Europe, you, I don't know if this is going a bit off one, actually. 
I don't know what you've got time to explain. No, 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 go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eastern Europe, you have a very curious thing um, where the new Stalinist state, particularly the GDR, above all the GDR, East Germany, used the rhetoric of the International Brigades and the Spanish Civil War as part of their the rhetoric of their new regimes to justify their new uh, anti-fascist credentials. Above all in the GDR, which becomes absolutely obsessed with the Spanish Civil War, and the Spanish Civil War impregnates absolutely official culture. Um, and children are brought up to follow the Spanish comfort, the Spanish fighters who died in Madrid. Um, so also in Eastern Europe, there's a, there's a, from a different and more negative point of view, there's there's also there was a very strong memory, of course. Probably that's all been mainly destroyed now. Um, so different it, it, different um, political movements have used, uh, for good or for ill, the memory of the Spanish Civil War um, as a as an example to follow. Really, I'd like to thank Nick for his time. If you've enjoyed Partisans, Nick's virtual tours come highly recommended check out thespanishcivilwar.com to find out more. That's thespanishcivilwar.com to find out more. I'll be back next week with a new show. Until then, Sloan. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 